you would remain standing and open your Bibles again to the Gospel of John. We continue our study a few more weeks here before we pause and we'll have a, a four-week Advent series where we'll come out of Hebrews uh, for that. Uh, and then we'll pick up on the back end of Advent and continue our study of John's Gospel. This morning we're going to pick up halfway uh, right in the middle of verse 36 and read to the end of the chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of that synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word of the Lord. Let's ask for help. Father, we need you. As we consider the realities of judgment and salvation sitting side by side, we need you. We need you to be able to see some hard things and to understand and live in light of them. Lord, may your spirit be at work doing these things. Lord, what is impossible with us is utterly doable for you. So we pray that you would do a great work in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the text in front of us today are the last words of Jesus in his public ministry. Stop and think about that. The next several chapters, 13 through 17, Jesus is just going to be with his followers, just a small group of people. 
And then 18, betrayal and trial and death on a cross. And the, I think that gives this some weight. Right? We're, we're very close spatially. Like it's hard to see in John because it, it, the, the teaching is so rich and full and, and goes on so long. But Jesus is hours away from death. Last week we saw several interesting things happen. Greeks, Gentiles, coming to see Jesus. The world is coming to Him. And this seemed to be some trigger that let Jesus know this is the end. His hour had finally come. And we saw that this hour was actually glory. It's a glorious hour. But then that jams together with the reality that Jesus said it means that he's going to be lifted up on the cross. We had those two realities in front of us. In our text today, John is going to set out an answer to what would likely have been a burning question in their day and not a question in our day. And that is this, why did the Jews largely reject Jesus? Why are these leaders rejecting him? You imagine this, this gospel message going out through the Gentile world after the fall of Jerusalem. And it's coming to people and they're reading it and yet they're wondering, why didn't the whole nation repent? If this is who this Jesus is, why, why didn't they repent and believe? That would have been a burning question for many of the early readers of this gospel. It's not a burning question that we have. We're far enough away from that. We, we know that. We know why or kind of have some sense of how things went. But imagine being a lot closer to this day. The people would need some kind of reason. Why did Jesus' own people reject him? such clear signs and clear messages as to who Jesus is. So we'll approach it in two ways. We'll see judgment um, explained to us. Judgment explained and salvation offered. First, judgment explained. To set the scene, we go back to verse 36. We saw last week, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. The light is on, and while it's shining, Jesus says, walk in, in light. And then what does the second half of 36 say? The light goes out. He hides. He leaves. Suddenly, the light is off. Jesus is giving a living illustration of the teaching that he just said. While I'm here, believe. Because when I'm gone, the light is gone. John wants us to see why that is. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before then, they still did not believe. And the this is the reality for all of us as well. Like, maybe you've had a conversation with someone, well, if Jesus would just tell me, if he would just do something in front of me, if he would just, you know write it in the sky with some divine hand, and then I would believe. Nope. No. That's not the reality of our hard hearts. 
John is reminding us that Jesus has done these great signs. And he's even going to say at the end of the book, he's given us seven signs that they're just outstanding. And we've looked at all of them. And the very end of the book says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John hones in on seven particular signs, but he's saying Jesus did so much more. That if we started writing now, we could fill the whole world with volumes about what his life entailed. John 1, 9 through 11 told us what was coming. It told us what to expect. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus has done so many things. So many wonderful things. And people still reject have you ever had an encounter with someone famous around you? And maybe you realized it, maybe you didn't. Maybe someone later told you, hey, this is who that person actually is. I had an experience like that once where we were in an airport in a time when you could still kind of be near a concourse when we were waiting for a missionary who was uh, coming in, into town. And there were probably a couple of hundred people video cameras and all that waiting for something and so we just asked we were like wait what's why, why is the news here and all these people and they were waiting for the this um little league baseball team had just won the world series and they were hundreds of people around like celebration there were balloons and a, a massive um humanity was there all waiting and Everybody's anticipating it. And then Bert, the pastor who I was with, he elbows me and said, look over there. I looked and Barry Sanders was walking by. Do you know who that is? That was very meaningful to me. A few of you are nodding. He's probably one of the best running backs who's ever played the game of football. Nobody noticed. It was incredible. He's a 10-time pro bowler. 15,000 rushing yards, an incredible athlete, known by the entire country, probably known worldwide. And here all those people are waiting on a little league team to get off a plane. And one of the greatest athletes who's ever played the game is walking right here. Nobody noticed. In some small way, that's kind of what's going on with Jesus. Here he is, the very Son of God in their midst. They have seen him do incredible things and utterly reject him. They're looking the other way. They're paying attention to other things. This question about why they would reject hangs over our own heads often. Any of us who've ever known an unbeliever, we take this question up. Like we, we tell people that we love, whether it be a family member who's lost or a friend who's lost, we tell them the truth. And we wonder why they reject. Paul takes this issue up in Romans 9 through 11. Why are people rejecting Jesus? He is utterly in anguish for his brothers. 
He said, I would gladly trade my life for, that, for theirs, that they would believe. So having all this evidence, why do they reject? John gives us a twofold answer. The first part of the answer is from a div divine perspective. And the second part is from the human perspective. God is sovereign. We can't get around that at all in Scripture. He simply does what He wills in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. God is sovereign. He is in control. The, the Bible also, though, clearly time and time and time again accentuates human responsibility. The Bible gives us both. So first, the divine perspective. Why do they reject? Look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So that, in order that, why do they reject? So that the word spoken by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Some 700 years before, Isaiah prophesied that this would be the case. Verse 39 goes a step further. Therefore, they could not believe. They couldn't believe. Does that make you uncomfortable? They could not believe. Saying this is very hard. It, it, it's a hard saying. It makes me uncomfortable. It certainly makes commentators uncomfortable who do gymnastics to get around it. Listen, we can't get around it. What John is wanting us to see is, is very clear. God is sovereign. God is in control. And sometimes that reality should unsettle us. We should, from time to time, be unsettled by this God that we read about in Scripture. God had already said they would reject. They don't reject Jesus to make prophecy come true. They reject him because prophecy is true. Listen, when we toss out teaching like this, something, we read something that makes us feel uncomfortable, they didn't believe because Isaiah said they wouldn't and they couldn't believe. If you try to do an end around things like that in Scripture, I think you, you end up missing a lot. Listen, I'd go so far as to say if the God of the Bible has never made you uncomfortable, maybe you haven't met him. He's a very disconcerting being. He is sovereign and he is holy and he is righteous altogether. He, he is altogether other. He is three times holy. That should unsettle us. You may have made this lesser God that you always feel comfortable with. I love it. Ray Ortland calls him Jesus Jr. Jesus Jr. never makes you uncomfortable. Jesus Jr. likes all the things that you like and doesn't like all the things that you don't like. Jesus Jr. loves the same kinds of people that you like. And Jesus Jr. hates the same kind of people that you hate. 
true and living God is having none of it. It, it says they, they, they reject Jesus because it was foretold and they could not believe. Listen, that's not a truth that we need to explain away. It's a truth that we need to sit in and learn from. God's hardening of heart is not a mistreatment or manipulation of morally neutral beings. These people are not morally neutral. They could go one way or the other. No, they're like every single one of us in here, deserving of death and hell and separation from God forever. That's what we're born into. That is our condition. Condemnation is the state that we are born under. A great question to ask when looking at judgment like this, would we feel better about this rejection of Jesus if God were not in control of it? that somehow make it better, easier to understand and comprehend? Would it make a difference for those who reject God that you know? Would you feel better about it if God weren't completely in control? I think the answer to that question is no. Where, where is this rejection going? What is the force of this rejection? How is it going to to go after this rejection? It's going to lead to Jesus' death. That's the reality of their rejection. It's going to lead Jesus to the cross. It leads him to being lifted up in glory. Verse 38, John quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Again, a reference to the fourth suffering servant song. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the question that dominates the scene and that unfolds in Isaiah and is fulfilled in the life of Christ. The rejection of this suffering servant leads to these verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen, the rejection of the suffering servant leads to salvation. That's the point. Rejection leads to the cross. He also quotes the text we heard Howard read earlier, Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The scene is incredible. The very throne room of God, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, angels flying, covering his face, Isaiah crying, woe is me. This is where God commissions, calls and commissions Isaiah as a prophet. This grand vision, the tongues and his his lips can now speak. But you have to notice very closely what he's calling him to. He's calling him, this is is the worst preaching gig ever. This this is a terrible job to be called to by God because he says this, I am calling you to fail. 
You are going to be a preacher and you're going to go preach and the people's hearts are just going to get harder and harder and harder. I am calling you to preach and people are going to harden. They're not going to turn. They have ears, they're not going to listen. They have eyes, they're not going to see. They have hearts that beat inside, but not real hearts. They have become like the idols that they worship. The people that you're going to preach to, Isaiah, are like idols. Blind, deaf, dumb. Same reality is going on in John. He's trying to highlight for us what's going on with their rejection. Listen, they are more interested in power and prestige and money. We heard the Pharisees say it a couple of weeks ago. We will lose the people and our place. This should not completely shock us. Here in the middle of John's gospel, we've heard throughout that God is sovereign over salvation. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom He will. John 6, No one can come to the Father unless the Father has, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8, Whoever is of God and hears the words of God, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Again and again and again, we see that God is sovereign in the situation. It's also very clear throughout John's gospel that God is calling us to believe human responsibility. Clearly, this is taught. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We are called by God to believe. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. John goes further explaining this in 41 through 43. Isaiah said these things. He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And here we're getting down to it. Way back 600 years ago, whose glory did Isaiah see that day? This is beautiful. We all know it's a pretty familiar passage. Isaiah 6 is, John tells us whose glory he saw that day. Who was in that throne room? Whose train of the robe filled the whole place? Who were the angels singing to? Holy, holy, holy. He tells us right here in this verse. That was Jesus. It was his glory. He's the sovereign. I and my Father are one. What a beautiful reality. It's an outstanding passage. The whole earth is full of the glory of Christ. So judgment is a divine prerogative. We've seen the divine perspective. Now what about human responsibility? Many authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it. 
Listen for this section here. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Again, John is making it about the glory of God. We saw last week both in Isaiah 6 and 53 speak of the glory of Christ. Yet the assessment of these authorities is that the glory of God is inferior to the glory of man. Listen, I think every single one of us here can apply this. Every single one of us in this room. Are there ways in our life that we seek the approval of others? That the approval of other people means more to us than the approval of God himself. Do we value the glory that comes from people more than the glory of the cross? We saw it last week. We love a theology of glory. We tend to despise a theology of suffering. A.W. Pink says this, they preferred the goodwill of other sinners above the approval of God. Oh, the short-sighted folly of these wretched men. Oh, the madness of their miserable choice. Of what avail would the good opinion of the Pharisees be when the hour of death overtook them? In what stead will it stand them when they appear before the judgment throne of God? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? The Pharisees were making a calculated choice. My reputation, even though they they are tending to believe, but my reputation means more to me than who Jesus is and what he can do for me. What an astounding reality. See, that's the flip side of judgment. They could not believe, and they were still holding on to their reputations, to the glory they had before men. It's a terrifying reality in life because John isn't saying that this faith saves. He is critiquing this faith. He is saying this kind of faith does not save. John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This makes sense. This makes sense to see the glory of God in Christ, the love that takes him to the cross. If you see that reality, listen, people become way less scary. If you see the glory of God in the lifted up Christ, people aren't nearly as daunting. People and their opinions of you go smaller and smaller and smaller as God and his gospel gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Truly the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is true. If you care more about the glory of man than the glory of God, have you ever really seen his glory? The glory, and this is how we combat this in our souls. If people become too big to us, our reputation becomes too big, it's look to the glory of Christ on the cross. There's never been anyone greater, and that's where he went. This glory should shape our entire lives. Listen, wanting to be liked is not wrong. That's not bad. But when you would do anything to get likes on social media, when you would say anything to, to have be liked by certain people, when you would do anything to get the glory and approval, maybe at work, with friends, 
when you would do anything and truck anybody to get that glory, you're, you're way more concerned about people than you are the glory of God. Ask yourself what lengths have you gone to be approved by men? Notice one of the reasons they don't make it known is that they don't want to get kicked out of church. We're going to lose our standing at, the, at church. Everybody will know we're one of those crazy Jesus followers. And here's another lesson before us today. To, to follow Jesus is costly. Of course you might get tossed out of the synagogue. They hate Jesus. To follow Jesus is costly. So John gives an explanation then of judgment from the divine perspective and the human perspective. But sitting side by side with judgment, we have this offer of salvation that comes from Jesus. Judgment to salvation. Notice verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, we should pay attention, that's only three times in John. He cries out. He cries out when offering living water, when raising Lazarus from the dead. He cries out here, giving life-giving words. Please pay attention to the grace of this. We, we were just told by John how Jesus is being rejected. And look at the way he answers rejection. He answers it with grace and life and himself. He's putting himself out there. There are two main themes that run through what he's saying. Faith in Christ is not faith in any mere mortal man, but it's faith in God himself. And two, again and again, we're called whoever, anyone, the one, Jesus is casting a wide net to you and to me to believe. Three times Jesus links his ministry to the ministry of the Father. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. The loud and clear answer to does God care about the suffering of the world? Jesus is answering that question right here. God has an answer to the suffering in our world. Look at Jesus. It's the loud and clear answer. He has done something. The Father has sent him. John Owen captures this so beautifully. He says this, quote, In Christ we behold the wisdom, goodness, love, grace, mercy, and power of God, all working together for the great work of our redemption and salvation. When you see any of those things in the person of Jesus, you are seeing those attributes of God himself. What a profound reality. The application is very simple. And it's this, to trust Christ is to trust God the Father. To know Christ is to know God the Father. Loving Jesus is loving God. Belief in Christ is belief in God. Jesus and the Father are one. And this deep connection of Father and Son, we hear and feel deep emotion from Jesus in rejection. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That is what he is offering. Yet he is being rejected. And so he turns to unbelief in 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. 
the words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Listen, there's a very simple reality that he is putting forward. To reject Jesus is to reject God himself. If you reject his words, you are rejecting the words of God. If you reject his actions and his mission, you are rejecting the action and mission of God himself. To receive Jesus is to receive his word. He continues in 49 through 50, good stuff, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What an incredible reality. Jesus is coming. We're just told about the rejection of people. And, and here Jesus says, believe. He's holding out the offer of eternal life. And remember, this is his last public statement. They hold great threat and promise. Jesus is speaking authoritatively, again, connecting himself with the Father. He's offering eternal life. Here at the transition in John's Gospel, judgment sits side by side with salvation. And that is exactly the way God has always worked. That's why these events that we're going to see unfold are going to be both judgment and salvation together. What is the cross? It's judgment. What is the cross? It's salvation. So here's God's word is holding out judgment and salvation before us. There's one final application is what will you do with it? Will you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life. Lord, may we be shaped and changed by it. Lord, help us as we often do seek the glory of man more than we seek your glory. Would we be shaped, Lord, by these words, molded more and more into the image of Christ. May we seek your glory more than our own. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.